GM. Let's go. Put it in the box. And make it 14 as he gets Anderson looking. Jacob DeGrom ties his career high with 14 strikeouts. Scooter and the big man bust the city in half, and the Mets lead it. A grand slam high off the right field foul pole. He's done it again. Francisco Lindor. That's driven to deep right field, headed toward the wall. That ball is out of here. Jeff McNeil breaks the ice with his 23rd home run of the year. Uh, amazing city. Podcast. And just like that, we are back for another episode, a bit of an emergency episode here on the Amazing City. Antonio Slater, Jack Ramsey, we got uh, got some stuff to talk about today. Uh, finally, it seems like the Mets have a front office hire. It, it took God knows how many names and God knows how many weeks. It seems like every other week there was a new favorite. Every other week there was someone that was on the cusp of being hired and then something fell through, whether their, the, their permission got, got, got declined or they didn't want to take the job. Who knows what was going on, but it seems like the Mets will finally have a new general manager, and it is Billy Epler. I'm going to let you give your thoughts first. I mean, I think it's an interesting hire. Um, you know, he. it's hard to really judge what he was able to do in Los Angeles when you have meddling owners. You know, it's the same way. It's really hard to judge what Perry Mastison doing right now. Moreno's are very hands-on. Art Moreno loves to have his hands in everything they do. It's very Wilponian. Um, it's 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 an interesting hire. Um, you know, his name came out about a month or so ago, but was very quickly walked back on because of his new deal with his agency that he had just started working for and his new involvement as an owner or as an agent. So it's definitely a little surprising in my opinion. I felt like, you know, all fall we've heard a lot of, oh, well, so-and-so just started this position. They don't want to leave it. Or right. so-and-so likes the job they're at. They don't want to leave it. So now we have a case of someone who's like, you know what? Yeah, fuck my new job. I'll, 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 take, I'll take this one. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of it probably has to do with, you know, his familiarity with New York, you know, being a Yankee executive and a scouting man for the Yanks as long as he was. And I think just a desire to try and be able to make his own mark on it or his own mark on a team without having to, you know, without effectively being the puppet for, for an owner. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I like, I'm trying to sell myself on it. I think when his, his name first came out, it seems like with all the names that came out, I was like, all right, I could do it. I'm fine with this person. I'm fine with that person. I'm fine with this person. Then I saw Billy Epler, and I think my immediate text was you was anyone but Epler. <laughs> I think it was probably a little bit more spicy than that. But... Right, right. But we try to keep it a little clean here besides, you know, what you just said about 10 seconds ago. Um, and then, of course, here we are a couple weeks later, and Billy Epler, it's not official yet. There hasn't been – a press release or any terms, any, any turns being released, no contracts been sent out yet, but he's been offered the spot and I can't imagine a world where that's going to get denied and everything from, from your reports and everyone else reporting from last night is that this expects to get done within the next 24 hours or so. Uh, yeah. I was, um, I was talking to some people within the Mets who said that they are expecting it to happen. Uh, I tweeted out last night that some, that Mets employees are starting to operate under the impression that Epler will be the new head executive for the Mets to clarify what that means. Cause there are definitely some questions as to what that means. Um, you know, as we saw with the coaching staff, you know, when a new head or a new leader comes in, you know, players are not players, ex coaches and executives are given the option of exploring other ventures, staying intact, looking at their contracts. So I do definitely do think, or my understanding is that, you know, some executives are starting to sit down and think, all right, what's the new direction going to be? I want to talk to Billy. I want to see what Billy wants to do. You know, I think especially it'll be interesting for the Mets scouting department, you know, Epler being a scouting guy himself. Mm -hmm. He was a, he was, you know, a scout at first with the Rockies. I think he broke in in 2000. Um, but when you look at the Mets, their strongest department, you know, historically dating back 
probably to over a decade now has been their scouting department. Right. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see, especially considering the Angels couldn't scout for a damn under Epler. Um, you know, and I, I think it's important to note GMs don't have a lot of say in the draft. Um, I know Zach Scott really just kind of left it up to the Mets scouting department. They kind of told them, look, you guys have been doing this for years. You're great at it. Do your thing. And for all intents and purposes, the Mets had a solid draft. You know, I think when you look at rounds two through 20, they had, <laughs> they, they had a great draft. They, they drafted a Would lot. Been a grand draft. slam, but. No, it wasn't. I, you know, and I've been, I've been telling people I talked with, I think how bad that rocker pick turns out to be is dependent on how they attack the 2022 draft. But I think we'll talk about more later and the implications of Syndergaard leaving sure. what that has in their draft outlook for next year. But you know, I think it'll be interesting to see how Epler handles the Mets scouting department. It's one of the more well-respected ones in baseball. But now you have, you know, by trade, a scout coming in who couldn't really scout for anything in Los Angeles. I think that that's going to be a really interesting dynamic to watch. A lot of this is going to be interesting. I Not I as know. interesting as Brad Osmus. Like... I'm trying to look at the positives of, of Epler and the one big thing, and this, this is something that is going to work very well at Steve Cohen is that he does not go, he doesn't care of, you know, about payroll. You know, he's going to say, if there's a, a big fish out there, he's going to try to go and get it. So it definitely tries to put the Mets in play for the Bryants, the, uh, the, the Robbie Rays, the Scherzers. And even though he's not going to come here, the Verlanders, all the big name guys, I think, with the eventual hiring of Billy Epler will help the Mets try to, because he somehow he finds ways to get those guys there, whether the good contracts or not. I mean, the Justin Upton is, is horrible. Albert Pujols is not good there, but regardless of the bad contracts, he got the guys there. So interesting to see how he tries to lure in the big fish as you put out, but a lot of it is, I don't know. I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait and see. And another big thing is he's boys with David Stearns. The Mets have not hid the fact that they want David Stearns to, to run this, this operation here. So it's going to be a historic tampering fine if and when that happens in 2022. But golly, I, if, if, they're, if this is their way to bridge the gap until they get David Stearns here, I guess. You know, <laughs> screw it. Let's try to have some fun in 22. I think a lot of people are misunderstanding the um... – the emphasis of tampering for the Mets. You know, yeah. if it is found that the Mets somehow found out that Stearns would come next year if he could work with Billy Epler or whatnot, whether it be through back channels or directly, you know, I think you also have to note Steve Cohen is a big fish in a big pond now. Yeah. In a pond that is not used to having fish that big. Like Sandy said, oh. they want to shop in the gourmet aisle now. Right. But I think, you know, you have billionaires in baseball, obviously. Right. But you have billionaires in Oakland who don't spend anything because they right. view the baseball team as an investment. Sure. So now you have a billionaire who views it as a fan and is willing to do whatever. You know, I heard rumblings that Cohen doesn't really follow procedure when it comes to certain things. He would just reach out to executives who are, who are employed by other teams without going through the proper channels and just chat with them. You know, just totally disregarding procedure mm -hmm. so i think if there's any way for baseball to try to find a way to put, put steve cohen in his place they will yeah and i think we saw that a little bit with some of with some of the permissions that we saw get denied i think it's definitely worth Absolutely. saying that there was probably pressure from ownership and certain teams i think especially milwaukee might be the best case of it there was definitely pressure from certain ownerships to get their guys to stay as opposed to bolting for the mets and I think we'll see it happen any way, any way baseball can, you know, because you've never had an owner quite like Steve Cohen before. Right. And I, I wonder if, if Steve Cohen kind of uses other teams denying permission to talk to his executives as motivation to just piss other teams off even more and just sign literally everyone. If, if he says, you know what? <clears throat> screw the pick we want justin verlander he's gonna go and <laughs> go out and get him just to 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 spite the other teams i get giving up the 14th pick is it is valuable but honestly if giving up the 14th overall pick means winning a ring in the next year or two i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say no i'm not gonna deny that 
I, th- I think their first course of action should be shopping in the non-qualifying offer dial. Of course. You no, know, if I were the Mets, you know, you in theory need three starting caliber pitchers right now and the rest you need, you know, I think in theory, if your depth going into the year starts with McGill, Peterson, and Williams, I think you're fine. I, th- I think if those it's are better than most, it's better than most guys. other 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 organizations. Yeah, sure. if those, if I mean, if you have guys getting hurt and those are your first three guys up, I think you're all right. Yeah, but you know, you do need to fill in the Syndergaard spot that you had penciled in in the Stroman spot. Mm-hmm. You know, he's good as gone. So I think, I mean, if, in an ideal world. The Mets go out and they land Kevin Gosman and John Gray. I agree. You pencil Gray into your five, throw Gosman up in between DeGrom and Carrasco. And in theory, you're one through five. You're looking DeGrom, Gosman, Carrasco, Walker, Gray. Which is a very strong five. Right. And if you'd like to, maybe you substitute Gray for, I don't think it ever happened, but if you want some lefties, maybe you go and you pencil in a Carlos Rodon. Or maybe mm-hmm. you go and you pencil in a Steven Matz. Sure. You got two strong lefties who did not get qualifying offers. Or if you're going to go in the trade market, you can go and and get a Sean Manaya out of Oakland. Right, or even for a lesser value, a Danny Duffy. For sure. There's, I think, certainly viable pitching options for the Mets to round out their rotation. You know, like we saw with, with, I think, a lot of the market last year. There was a lot of three or fours on the market last year. You know, after we got past Bauer, there wasn't much in terms of top-end arm, which I think is why you saw the Mets go out and get Carlos Carrasco. Who personally, I think people are sleeping on. Oh my god! The Mets, the Mets botched. You know, they botched his rehab. They misdiagnosed his leg injury. Then it turns out he has elbow issues, and they go out and they have to go and take the bone chips out. I think with the full spring training, people forget at his. You know, if you want to call it his peak, when Cleveland was dominating the American League Central, he was a top fifteen pitcher in baseball. Absolutely. But he was overshadowed because he was behind the top three pitcher in baseball in Kluber. Yeah. So. I think the Mets definitely need to go and look first at pitchers who do not have the qualifying offer attached to them. Because I do think if you're giving up the 14th overall pick and what I think, what a lot of people think is probably the single best draft of the past decade or so. I know we've talked about it. I've talked about it a lot is you have this draft class that is just stupid loaded where you have, even you have some insanely talented 2023s, that are reclassifying to 2022 and just making this class even stronger. Right. You know, I think if you're giving up that sort of draft capital in a year like this, it has to be worthwhile. You know, if you're going to do that, go and get Carlos Correa. Right. Go, yeah. yeah. Just get stupid. <laughs> right. Straight yeah. up, get stupid. stupid but if you're going to do it, if you're, if you're giving up that pick, it can't be for, you know, a Justin Verlander or a Chris Taylor. For as valuable of pieces those might be, you're giving up some insane draft capital after botching last year's first round pick. Right. I'm I'm a huge supporter of the Mets scouting system. I think they do a great job. I think they have a great balance of, you know, in-person scouting and trusting the eyeballs, but also then watching that back up with data. You know, when I interviewed Mark Tremuda in the summer, he told me everything he that he's big on video scouting. He'll watch guys. But guys that he views as big time prospects, he will then go and watch in person to see if the video backs, to see if his eyes will back up what he saw in the video. Right. He'll take what he saw in person and take it to the analytics department and run what he thought he saw through the numbers and see if it all backs up. They have a phenomenal system in place, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to note that, you know, when you have this idea of the West Coast Dodgers, a lot of what they do comes through scouting and drafting. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. You can make a case. Their most important pitcher this year was Julio Urias. Yeah, he was the staple of that rotation. I don't. I don't. Even, I have my thoughts on him. No, right. I, I, I mean, like, obviously, you have your but, thoughts, obviously, right. But when it comes to on the field stuff, if it's not Walker Bueller, it was absolutely unequivocally Julio Urias. And he was a great find by them. You know, I think you see a lot of you see a balance in LA of player development where you take guys like a Turner and a Muncie and find their strengths and build on that. You have the ability to spend money where you go and you find being able to take on a Scherzer contract, going and signing Mookie Betts to a monster extension. Right. And then you have, and you have homegrown scouting. Yeah. Like a lot of it was built on on scouting and developing from within. And then the guys that they've brought in were just ended up supplementing that. Like they didn't think Chris Taylor was going to be this kind of a star. It just kind of happened. The same thing with Max Muncy. They found these guys 
And because of their scouting and how they develop their players, they turned out to be superstars. Max Muncy is a superstar because of what the Dodgers did for him. Chris Taylor is in, I wouldn't call him a superstar, quite frankly, but he's in the tier below it. He's in the tier below it. Chris Taylor, if I remember correctly, had an OPS under 500 in his last year in Seattle before they moved to the Dodgers. And then his next year, I think he put up like an 850 or something around that. Yeah. And I I mean, listen, when it comes to the postseason, Chris Taylor is a superstar. Oh, yeah. But they have an absurd player development system in L.A. It's an it's remarkable. Um, But like we're we're getting a little ahead of ourselves talking about these players. We do. Another thing that we need to talk about is who is going to manage this team, because, again, eventually, once Billy Epler becomes the, the general manager, he needs to build a staff and he needs to hire a manager. And again, People got to give you a little bit of a hat tip here. A month and a half ago, I want to say, you initially said that Brad Osmus will be in the running. And it looks like as of now, if I were a betting man, my money would be on Brad Osmus being the next manager of the Mets. Yeah, I definitely think Brad Osmus will be an option. Um, you know, just, I, I wouldn't personally, this is unsourced, but just my opinion. Uh, I, I expect them to give Jace Tingler a call. I know he just hopped on the Minnesota staff. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think it will, but I think this – I mean, Rocco Baldelli, I think, is still the – I think now that Rojas is uh, no longer a manager, I think Rocco Baldelli is the youngest – well, actually, no. Oliver Marmol is pretty young. He's like 35. Rocco Baldelli, for a little bit, was the youngest manager in baseball not too long ago. Right. Winning 100-plus games and hitting 300 home runs a year. So – I don't think they plan to have Tingler as some sort of successor to Baldelli. Um, and I don't think they would have any hesitation in terms of letting him out of his contract to go be a manager elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think they'll give Mike Schilt a call. Mm-hmm. He'll probably get an interview to say at, at the least, but I think you'll also see why the Cardinals moved on. You know, right, the Cardinals yeah. an insane, miraculous postseason run and then turn around and fire their manager. And the main reason they cite is him not buying into the process they have in place. And the Mets are on the verge of having a 30-person-plus analytics department. Right. They have 26 people employed right now. Several more postings. Right. At the minimum, they have four more postings that will get them past 30. I think they have like six or seven, actually. There, I, I took a little scouring on that page. There was there was more than four. <laughs> yeah. But, like, you know, just just to the, comment the, on Schilt real quick. When Schilt was fired, I – immediately put out something saying i want the mets to hire him i've moved past that thought he's not i I don't think that's going to happen and please i'm begging everyone stop recommending buck showalter he's not coming here there's a reason why he hasn't had a manager job in so long this is a team that's going to be built on scouting and analytics and buck showalter is a dinosaur in that era it's not gonna happen I get you want that hard-nosed, blue-collar, small-ball way of baseball. And I love it, too. Listen, I'm a traditionalist. If I had to – until, like, this past year, I was all for the pitcher batting staying in the National League. I was all for it. But, like, this this whole notion that Buck Showalter is going to change the dynamic of this, it's not going to happen. This is a team built on scouting and analytics. They're building – they're, they're going to have a 30-plus man scouting department. Stop. It's not going to happen. Move on. Get past it. The way you baseball know, I, is going is is young guys that will go with the analytics and go with what, what they say. Look at St. Louis. They they go on some they go on a playoff run, probably the be, the best playoff run we've seen from a team since the Mets since 15. And they the fired Mets, the guy. You know, the Mets, the, the Cardinals are one of the most miraculous playoff run we've seen from a team since the Mets in 2016. And the Cardinals fire their manager because he couldn't buy into the numbers they have in place. I think a lot of people misunderstand the, the importance of the analytics department. Right. You know, the analytics department, its purpose is to have people have unbiased analysts, mm-hmm. you know, who don't come in with a preconceived notion of players or perspectives on that. That's why when you see baseball analyst option opportunities, a lot of the lower level ones don't require baseball knowledge because your job is to come in with different perspectives on numbers and systems, not your opinion on the bunt. You know, like no one's really gonna give a rat's ass 
if a, if you know a thirtieth or twenty fifth baseball analyst in the department likes the bunt or not. Right. Those anal- like it doesn't matter. Their job is to crunch numbers, relay the data to the top of the department, to the Ben Zosmers, to you know the formerly Zach Scotts, the Billy Eplers, and it's their job to decide what to do with those numbers. You know that's why the Cardinals bought into to Ali Marmol because he buys into what they have in place. And when you have managers in G and front offices working in unison together, buying into the data, you get the Tampa Bay Rays. No one's a bigger believer in what the Rays are doing aside from the guys doing it themselves. than Kevin cash. Right. He is right. There, aside from the people in the front office, crunching those numbers. No one believes in their system more than Kevin cash. That's just a fact. That's a hundred percent fact. So I think you need to find someone who can buy into that sort of to that sort of initiative and that sort of drive. Yeah, so Kevin Cash I, believes in it so much that he pulled the Cy Young winner in the World Series game after five innings. After what, what was it, 70 pitches? He absolutely would do it again. You know what? That almost worked out. It almost worked out. You know what? Tell it to the Dodgers. Well, yeah. But you know what? The numbers got them to that point. Of course. And that's, there isn't some sort of, you know – some sort of greater baseball power who says, Oh, well, once you get here, go traditionalist and bunt the runner over to second and a sack fly and a base hit drives it. Like there's no, like, there's no like baseball God speaking down from the heavens with the clouds parting, telling you that you trust what has gotten you to that point. I love when people, I absolutely love when people shit on analytics and shit on a new modern way of baseball as if every team that wasn't just in the playoffs is analytically driven. Nobody shifted more in the second half than the Atlanta Braves. Right. Nobody shifted more. Nobody had more of a – no one had a better team defensive run save in the second half than the Atlanta Braves. And their defense in the first half was questionable. Mm-hmm. It was questionable. Uh, at, at best, Dan, I would say. Know that. At best. You know that. It was Dansby Swanson and everyone else. Ozzy right. Albies as well. But he even struggled yeah. a little bit. And, and, and Acuna, but, you know, obviously injury. Nothing you can do about that. But – then you see, in you know, what's perceived as an old-fashioned manager buying, being willing to buy into something new and try it to see if you can get these results. Because no, the Dodgers are run by some of the more analytically smart people in baseball. The mm. Mets have one of the best analysts in baseball, and Ben Zosmer. You know where they got him? Los Angeles Dodgers. He runs their research and development. Right. You know, you have the Tampa Bay Rays. You know, the, the disciple of the Braves, Heim Bloom. Mm-hmm. You know, you have all these angles and plays at work, and no matter which way you want to try it, virtually every team that was in the playoffs was an analytically driven team. With maybe Milwaukee's the another the White Sox, but the biggest downfall of the White Sox is they have oodles of talent, and they couldn't tell a rat's ass from a donkey's ass in terms of numbers. They don't know what to do with Carlos Rodon. They right. don't know what to do with. Well, I, I guess he's gone now. But who's the second baseman they traded for Kimbrel? Oh um, God, oh magical. Yeah, they didn't know what to do with Madrigal to the point where it seemed like they were ruining him and they shipped him off to Chicago. And I'm pretty sure he did all right for Chicago. No, he was hurt the entire time. Was he? Oh, yeah. No, he got hurt I'm early in the year. someone else. I forget who. But, you know, you have these teams, even Dusty Baker. I can tell you with 100% certainty that when the Astros hired Dusty Baker, they said, look, here's our numbers. Here's what we have. You can use as little of it as you want or as much of it as you want. Right. But it's up, but but the results are then on you. We are giving you the tools that we think you need to succeed. Mm-hmm. Use them if you please. But your your results are your results. And they got close to another World Series. They right. got to another World Series. You know, they got outclassed most of it. Right. But now, granted, Houston's also there because they have a <laughs> phenomenal roster, but they also use the numbers. Nobody to, has to a better development program in baseball than the Astros. Right. The Astros are leaps and bounds. You know, when, when it comes to player development, the Houston Astros are the early 2010s New England Patriots. Right. Every, you know, there's, there's some other viable back episodes with comparing the Patriots to the Astros. Yeah. I mean, there are, you're going to have competitors every now and then in some teams that'll pull ahead for a little bit. But in the end, the Astros are always going to be there when it comes to player development. Mm-hmm. And that was in place before Jeff Leno got there. That's right. been an organizational mantra for them for years. And you know what? They outclass everyone in it. And yeah. they've got five straight American League championships. And there's a reason. There's a reason they lost Garrett Cole, didn't lose a beat. 
No. <laughs> There's a reason that they're going to lose Carlos Correa, not going to lose a beat. Mm-hmm. No, no one in baseball can afford to lose Carlos Correa. And be fine. But the Houston Astros might. <laughs> I have zero. You know what they're going to do? You know, you know what they're going to do? They're going to shift Bregman back to short. They're That's what up, I said months ago. They're going to they're going to call up some third baseman or some infield prospect I've never heard of. Stick right. him at third. He's going to put up a four and a half win season and win rookie of the year. No, I'm telling you, this is exactly what's going to happen. I I I I I think I, I might have said it to you. I said it to someone. They're going to shift over Bregman to shortstop. That's his natural spot. Shift him over to shortstop. Sign Kyle Seager to a one-year, eight and a half million dollar deal. He'll hit thirty-five tanks in that in that ballpark, especially with the with the short left field over there. He'll play a good enough third base. They still have they still have Yuli there. They still have Altuve. They still have Brantley. They still have some some guy. I don't know if you heard of him, Jordan Alvarez. They still have him there. They're going to piece something together for right field. Maybe they signed Conforto. Who the hell knows at this point? They still have Kyle Tucker. They're going to be fine. <laughs> They're they're going to be fine. Can you the Houston Astros are the least of my concerns? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, what's amazing is you know first full season where you don't have Garrett Cole, and you just you, you trot out Luis Garcia, puts right. up a three and a half ERA, Rookie of the Year finalist. Looks like the sky's the limit for him. He just does a meringue and throws throws ninety five. But you know what? The biggest issue with the Mets is right now is that you look at the Houston Astros, their play development system, whatever the polar opposite of that is, the Mets play development system is just like the butt fumble on loop. Right. It's 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 a dumpster fire. That's why I really thought they should have given a hard look at Ben Sestinovich with the Braves. Mm-hmm. The GM there is he's a PD guy through and through. You know, so hopefully the Mets are able to kind of start turning that around. You know, it's going to be a big point of emphasis for them. And you, you saw a lot of you saw a lot of important names take huge step backs last year. You know, yeah. I think when you're when you're penciling in your open your opening day lineup, you know, and the, the holes you still have, are you penciling in Jeff McNeil to a starting infield spot? I love the guy, but I don't think you can. You know, I think you could pencil him into an outfield spot in like a worst case scenario because there aren't many great outfielders on the board. Mm-hmm. But in a you know because it's a weak outfield class. Yeah. You know, your third or fourth best option is Mark Canna. And even then, you know, you're giving multiple years to Mark Hanna. I give him one an option. But. Yeah. But, you know, you're at a spot where are you really, you know, two years ago, Jeff McNeil was an all-star. Right. And it like the sky was the limit for him. They were going to give him a nice, big, fluffy extension the same time they gave Alonzo one. Right. And it just didn't happen. I, like, so, I remember in, in August, we were saying, <clears throat> when we were kind of doing our first look towards the offseason, we both said they need to extend Nemo, they need to extend McNeil. But now... I gotta I be honest. Still, I think I'd still. I think now is the time to extend McNeil. I think that you gotta trust the hit skill. You gotta trust the bat to ball skill, and I think we can all admit that at his worst, he's, he's a very still, above average bat to ball guy. Yeah, I think at his worst, like we saw last year, he's still playable. But you use him in some sort of super utility type role, which right. is fine. But which, if yeah. you get him on some sort of cheaper contract. Bring in a better hitting infrastructure. Here's the thing. Here's the Mets hitting infrastructure was all over the place last year. It was, yeah, crapshoot. I mean, they shouldn't, to be honest, they shouldn't have brought Julie Davis in, in the first place in 2019. There's a reason that man can't hold on to a job. Mm. You know, on field results are great and they're the goal. But the thing is, you want sustained on the field results. Absolutely. And the processes you have in place. Are, are the indicator of the results you will have, obviously. So the indications with the processes Chili Davis had in place, I mean, you had mass numbers of ground ball rates soaring for the Mets, but at the same time, you had home run numbers jumping. Mm-hmm. But you had this all or nothing hitting approach with strikeout rates also kind of climbing. And I, I don't, you, you can't live and die on all or nothing baseball. You know, I think part of what made the 2015 Mets so great and probably one of the one big keys for Sandy for Sandy Alderson's successes first the back the back end of his first time around was he preached this mantra of just be okay taking the open base. Mm-hmm. If you have a three one pitch and it's close but you can walk, take the walk. Trust the guy behind you. Right. Where chili ball was all or nothing. It was very all or nothing. <laughs> chili, you know, as we saw in the first half of the season, you know, when you get in May and June and they have those cataclysmic months, 
all or nothing was very much nothing. Mm-hmm. But and that's how you got have guys like Francisco Lindor batting two oh three. Right. I think a lot of people don't, for some reason, don't want to trust the system Hugh Quattlebaum has in place. But Hugh Quattlebaum and Kevin Howard are smart baseball minds. No, smart hitting. They are smart hitting minds. Look, I challenge you, because here's the thing. Chris Bryant, I think, said it best. For a month, he took 200. I think it was for a month, he took 200 swings a day Mm -hmm. just to be able to change his swing. Right. So if we want to sit there and do the math, whatever the hell 200 i gotta bring out a calculator what's 200 times 30 stop it so we have six thousand. <laughs> come on i'm sick leave me be so we have six thousand swings just for chris bryant to fix the swing right assuming the mets are not taking 200 swings a day right you're looking at probably two two and a half months to change an approach mm-hmm. to change a swing so at that two two and a half month mark Lindor starts to turn things around and start hitting better. Right. Alonzo starts hitting better. Yeah. Alonzo really turned it on at that point. You get you, you bring Javi Baez into the fold, he starts hitting better. You know, I think you you start to see these results come through. The Mets had a lot of guys whose strikeout numbers were, you know, suspiciously high first half, who really brought them back down to earth second half. Yeah. <laughs> and I think a lot of that is because of the new infrastructure they put in place. And I think the issue is when you bring in two guys who are supposed to have Port St. Lucie jobs mm-hmm. or, or, you know, Queens jobs of just overseeing everyone in the organization. Right. They approach the job with that mindset. Not that they have to be hands-on with the, in the dugout with Brandon Nimmo in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. trying to figure something out, you know, so you have that change and that difference. And I think we're going to see the Mets offense, especially certain guys, when you look at a Lindor and you look at an Alonzo, they're going to be leaps and bounds better this year, this upcoming year, than they were overall last year. Because they're going to be a, a, a full system or a full season under this new system. And I have, I, I believe that those guys are buying into it and what they have in place. Right. You know, cause, yeah. Like, I, I, I just, for me, it's just so hard to believe that the guys that struggled last year, especially when you looked at how good the Mets offense was towards the end of 18, 19, and 20. They had a good offense, especially in 19 and 20. In 2020, they had, I think it was a top three offense in the National League, if not in all of baseball. And then last year, it was just just absolutely plummeted to below mediocrity. So I just have a hard time believing what we saw this past year is what's going to be moving forward. Uh, But back to my point with McNeil, we went from saying – give him an extension and to me especially with the whole thing with him and Lindor I feel like he kind of falls under the same category as Dom Smith and JD Davis were can we even pencil him in to be on this team come opening day I personally especially with with the with the loss of Syndergaard which we'll get into one some of those guys could very easily be traded for pitching and I feel like McNeil falls into that category for sure. I think it was funny. I was I was talking with someone about Billy Epler, and the first thing this person said to me is, "He's gonna have to learn who Mark Vientos is." There's a I think there's a good chance the Mets take some of their fringe prospects who played up last year, namely a Mark Vientos. You know, I think you might have to look at a Ronnie Mauricio because he's clearly outgrown shortstop, and the fact that he's now it's like six five, two hundred plus pounds. It's a big boy. That's a big dude. That is a big man. I think you're going to look at those as pieces the Mets look to move, mm-hmm. especially if they decide to, if they decide to go the route of going, you know, balls to the wall, all in on guys who were not offered qualifying offers and try and bring in their big, you know, thump through the trading market. Mm-hmm. You might see them try and hold on to those draft picks. Because if you move, let's say you move a Vientos and a Mauricio and you take out two of your top five prospects. First of all, if you're, getting, if you're trading both Vientos and Mauricio, you better get a damn good i'm not saying the same deal but if you decide to say let's say you it's obviously not going to happen just considering the history and the contract but let's say you could in theory trade mark vientos for a back-end arm of the types of a paul seawald with high whiff rates high stuff rates two elite pitches 
but you can really hone in on those two pitches. Right. And you can trade Mauricio for a Luis Castillo or a Chris Bassett or a Sean Manaya. Right. Or a Sonny Gray, even. Right. Like you can make that move. But you can make that move if you decide those five picks that you're going to have seemingly in the top 90 or so picks, if you decide you're keeping all of those. No, if you can bring in who you believe to be the 11th and the 14th best players, and again, a out the ass loaded draft, mm-hmm. I think you can live with moving, you know, a bat first player in Vientos, who right. I still have my concerns about. Sure. And a player like Mauricio. You know, I think it was Mike and Mayer who put out the stat a couple or, or a week or so ago, but Mauricio's walk rates have not budged. Right. You know, I think I, I made the comparison. It was a weird one, but it was the only one that really came to mind. And the first one that came to mind, you know, TJ Rivera. I'm not comparing them as players. Right. <laughs> but the huge downfall we saw with TJ Rivera mm-hmm. was despite how great the bat-to-ball skill was, when you're in a slump, you're not getting on base. Right. And you're right. bringing minimal value to the team, if any. That's, that's what we saw with McNeil at some that's point. That's the difference year. between McNeil and, Maurice, McNeil and TJ Rivera is McNeil can still walk, and McNeil still limits the strikeouts at an elite rate. Mm. But Rivera is striking out and not walking. Right. So when you're not, so if you're not getting base hits, you're not getting on base. And, you know, that's going to be an issue that people see with Mauricio. Now the, well, now the question for him is where is he? Where, what is he? Like, positionally, what is he? Is he a corner outfielder? Right. Is he, is he just a very, very tall third baseman? <laughs> yeah, because I think it's safe to say, and you put it well, he's outgrown shortstop. If you look at the videos that of the highlights of him just mashing the ball, that's not a shortstop. No, I mean if you look at video coming out of him in the Dominican League, he's a huge kid. He's a huge kid. He's and huge. Like people have already already have the uh, concerns for like a Carlos Correa. Is he going to be too too big for shortstop? I feel like we're already having that conversation with Mauricio. That's a big guy, and he's going to keep growing into that frame because he's only what he's only twenty. I believe he just turned 20, yes. Yeah, so you could very easily move him to third base. You can move him to a corner outfielder, d- depending on on the athleticism he has. But, man, it's a big dude. That's a huge guy. He, obviously, you can't put him at first base because you have Pete Alonso there. Yeah. So. You know, yeah, that's true. I think another thing that's going to be interesting, and this is something that I've, I've proposed a couple of times, is I wonder if I wonder if in the new CBA you could trade the draft picks because you, you're making it seem like they're very valuable. So I wonder if in the CBA you could trade the draft picks because then all these picks that these Mets that the Mets are getting and they just got another one with Noah leaving going to LA for a one year twenty one million dollar deal, which I I don't get on a, on a couple of fronts. But if they can trade these draft picks, because I think they have like five in the top ninety or seven in the top ninety, whatever it is. You can trade those pieces to get something very good in return. This team needs pitching. A lot of pitchers available on the trade market more attainable than the free agent market. So it's going to be interesting. Uh, where do they go from here? I mean, it's. I think it all depends on how Billy Epler views these draft picks. He um, seems like a guy that would not value draft picks at all. I mean, you'd think so, but he's a scout by trade. Right. Uh, so... I don't know. I don't know. It's interesting. I think if he value if he does see the value in having two top picks in a loaded draft class, then I definitely think he would be willing to try and maneuver around the qualifying offers, which I definitely think they can. Right. But I mean, I it seems like could... the free agent pitching market has been set between Syndergaard getting twenty one million. Uh, Eduardo Rodriguez getting five for 77. Uh, Andrew Heaney got eight million, but that's kind of a, a nothing there. And, and uh, how, how, how could I forget my guy, Jose Barrios, seven years, 131 million. So it seems like the pitching market's set, and it seems like it's a little bit less money than we thought it would be originally. Yeah. I mean, especially on the longer term deals. I mean, I think they're interesting because Heaney, you're betting on the numbers. You're betting on the analytics. Mm -hmm. Syndergaard, you're betting on health. Sure. Eduardo Perez, you're betting on potential. Rodriguez. God damn it. Oh, my God. I pulled a nightingale. You pulled a nightingale. 
Oh, uh, good old Jack Nightingale. Oh my. I can already I can already hear Meg laughing at me <laughs> as she listens. Hi Meg. Um, <laughs> okay, I'm acting like that never happens. You know, Eduardo Rodriguez, it's a yeah. deal based on potential. I think the you know, the kind of the first major deal that would be really setting the market, I think would be Weber signs first out of Gosman, Ray, Strowman. Right. You know, because none of these are straight up, oh, okay, he's a good pitcher. He's been good the past couple of years. He got good money. I mean, right. you know, they all there are caveats to all of these, to the, to the first three deals. Heaney was, a, you know, didn't even last two months, really, in the Bronx before he got relegated to the bullpen and then DFA'd. Yeah. You know, Syndergaard has shown two innings in the last two years. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and for as good as Eduardo Rodriguez is, I don't think he's a you know a 16, 17 million dollar a year pitcher unless you see something in the numbers that suggest a massive jump forward. Or, right. You know, even more like he sustains what he was this year. Yeah. So I just, I'm just I, looking at the free agent pitchers, and there are definitely some interesting names out there. But if you're not landing one of those big three or four, including uh Kershaw, I'm not I'm I'm scratching Verlander because as much as I would love it, I don't think it's gonna happen. You know, you, you're looking at the Showmans, the Cosmans, the the Kershaws, Robbie Ray. I think I'd be willing to throw John Gray in that conversation. Oh yeah, he's. I'd say he's right below them for sure. But I, I like the idea of of that that five that you threw out there before of the Grom, Gosman, Carrasco, Walker, John Gray. You have to be happy with that. Obviously, you, you want to try to mix him up a little bit and get a lefty out there. But yeah, but if you're I rolling out there with those five, you can't be upset. I think the Mets can definitely fandangle their their summer or their winter around the qualifying offers and being able to keep their best efforts to keep that draft pick. Right. You know, because in theory, if you're penciling things in, you need two starters, couple bullpen arms. Bullpen arms won't be an issue. Only stupid yeah. teams give qualifying offers to bullpen arms. Mm-hmm. You know, and the so, Angels did that without Billy Epler. That wasn't Epler decision. You know, it's an Art Moreno move. It's an Art Moreno move. He's Jerry Jones if Jerry Jones didn't ring a, win a ring thirty years ago. Right. So I think it'll be. You know, you you can in theory sign if if you were to go, you let's say you go get Gosman and Gray. Mm-hmm. Let's say you trade for Luis Castillo, and then you sign Danny Duffy. You know, you can definitely move make moves in the rotation around not having to sign a qualifying offer and starting pitcher. Mm-hmm. You know, you can even, let's say you out, let's say you bring in Rich Hill. You said you bring Rich Hill back. Mm-hmm. You can definitely do that. Sure. You know, I think, I think they should. I think Rich Hill, I think would be a great swing man for them. I think if he was more than serviceable with the Mets, you know, if, if he's more than, if he's willing to, you know, he, I know he said at the end of the year, he was interested in coming back. You know, if he's willing to come back and not be guaranteed a spot on the rotation, you know, if you have these injury-prone starters, you're gonna need spot starts, right? You know, because even though the team is in Syracuse, you can't always just get someone in like that. So maybe you stick Hill in the bullpen as like a long swingman type thing, who can give you multiple innings out of the pen. And when you need starts, you get starts. And even with these guys, you know, if you do, let's say you do go Gosman, Gray, and the other three who are already in house, you know, the Grom pitched half a season, Carrasco pitched less than that. I think Gosman would be your only real safe bet to go all the way through, right? No, because even then, before last year, Gray and Walker had injury issues, historically. So, you know, so let's say you let's say you get through your rotation without having to sign any qualifying offer of pitchers. If you bring Baez back, that fills one of your infield holes. Let's say for all intents and purposes, you come in openings at third, second. Let's just pencil McNeil into right field for conversation's sake. Sure. And you either need a center fielder or a corner outfielder, depending on how like where you want to play Nemo with them. Mm-hmm. You can go and you can sign a Starling Marte. He couldn't get qualifying offered because of he, didn't, he wasn't in Oakland long enough. Right. Sign Marte. Right. Sign Marte, stick him in center, bump them out of left. Mm-hmm. You bring back Baez, you go and you get Chris Bryant. Right. You, in theory, so let's say that's Gosman, you know, without going into bullpen names because that's a crapshoot. Obviously. Let's say they, so just they don't sign Rice Iglesias. Right. Your moves are Bryant, Baez, Gosman, Gray, Marte. Mm-hmm. Or maybe, well, okay, no Marte. Let's say Mark Canna because it's, it's un, 
it's not smart to think they're going to sign four top tier free agents. So they, they signed three. Mm. They bring in a couple mid tier guys and they round out the bullpen with some solid arms, loop and mm. company, whatever. So you just bring you you just brought in a starting left fielder, two all star infielders, an all star starting pitcher, and a solid three or four at the back end of your rotation. If you that's not, the offseason, I don't think that you'll find a single Mets fan complaint. You didn't give up a qualifying, you didn't give sign a player with a qualifying offer attached to him. Mm-hmm. So you now have the 11th pick, the 14th pick, your second round pick, and two competitive balance round B picks that come in between rounds two and three. Right. I initially thought they were getting a pick between one and two, but that's only for teams who participate in revenue sharing. Got it. Shout out Chris Soto, my amazing numbers guy, who clarified that for me. The Mets do not participate in that, obviously. They're too stingy. So, but still, that's a top 90 pick. So you now have five of the top 90 picks in an effort to really reboot your system. You have Matt Allen coming back from Tommy John. You have the whoever the two first rounders you bring in. Mm-hmm. And that's if they don't, that's if they don't decide to go, you know what, whatever. I want Carlos Correa. Yeah. Like I think the Mets can definitely dance their way around the qualifying offer. Now, I, I think this year more so than ever, we're gonna see guys without qualifying offers fly off the board first. I don't know what it is in, in these last couple of minutes, but I'm thinking about completely going back on something I just said. I could see a war with the Mets get Verlander. I think Steve Cohen's going to be pissed. He's going to want to go balls to the wall this offseason. You're getting Billy Epler. I think, I think the I, Mets. I, I, I can very easily see a world where the Mets say, screw it. We want to win and we want to win now. And they give that deal for Justin Verlander. I just don't see them doing it to someone with injury concerns. I can see a world where the Mets and Billy Epler decide we're going to go all in on non-qualifying offered players first. And let's say you can't go and get a Gosman or a Gray and they both go elsewhere. Right. And you go, you know what? Whatever. Give me Verlander. Do whatever it has to do. Whatever I have to. Or you know right. what? Kershaw. Like, obviously, the top guy in that qualifying offer market will be Carlos Correa. But him to Detroit seems as, as good as done. So that's why I can't really consider that that as a possibility. I would love it because I mean, that would know. you would have the the dumbest infield of all time. But with Alonzo Baez, because I'm I'm just assuming he's back with Alonzo Baez, Lindor, and Correa. But in the scenario where that doesn't happen and you don't get a, a Corey Seager or or Trevor Story in that qualifying offer market, for me the next guy there, especially with Syndergaard going out west to LA the next guy has to be Justin Verlander. Yeah, giving up a 14th overall pick for a guy that's in his late 30s coming off Tommy John sucks. But you were at his workout. He was throwing 96 to 98. Everything looked sharp in there. You know, fundamentally, he's at, at, in the top of baseball. He wants to pitch until he's 45. Screw it. You want to give him a three-year deal to justify the 14th overall pick? I'm there for it because you know what? Justin Verlander is a guy right below Jacob DeGrom. Those two that's the top. That's the best one two in baseball. If that happens, that's a rotation that gets you to the World Series. I mean, I think that's banking on him being healthy again. I think that's. You, I'm you banking gotta... on it. I would bank on it. I just sold myself. <laughs> I just sold myself on Verlander to the Mets. <laughs> I do think again. I'll circle back to this. I think they first are going to look to find ways to. Um to fandangle their offseason around signing qualified offers. Oh, I agree. You know, just because speaking with people in the Mets, Steve Cohen does see how good the Mets scouting department is. Mm. You know, just considering he's been with, you know, people forget Cohen's been with the Mets for 10 years. Mm. You know, he was still a minority owner of the team. and was still a fan. Yeah, he still had like 8% stake or something. If you look, if you, you know, starting since I believe Tanos and Tremuda started running the draft in 2012. They hit on most all of their first round picks. Mm-hmm. You know, the the impotence of a first round pick is just make it to the show, be a contributor. Right. You know, you can make a case Gavin Caccini is their only real miss. Yeah. And even then, he was a high bust probability type guy. You know, so you look at it, you start in 2012. Okay, and let's just before the two years before they took over, I believe Tano Sinchmita joined the Mets in 2010. It's worth noting 
Their three first-round picks, 2010, 11, and 12, Harvey, Fulmer, Nimmo. Those yeah, are all yeah. three pretty big hits. Yeah. So you have Harvey, Fulmer, Nimmo, Fulmer, Nimmo, Ploiecki, who's on like a seven- or eight-year career now, mm-hmm. Dom Smith, question mark, but was a legit contributor in, at, at the big league level. Sure, Michael sure. Conforto about to probably get uh, – if he plays his cards right – he might still end up with a nine-figure contract someday. He's going to get big money. Justin Dunn. Started to figure out a little bit last year. Anthony sure Kay, kind of a question mark. David Peterson looked pretty good aside from a couple starts where there are rumblings he was pitching through injuries because at that point it was him, Stroman, and everyone else was on the shelf. Right. You know, Jerry Kelnick. Jerry top five Kelnick. prospect in baseball. Top five, top five prospect in baseball who is very likely – going to end up seeing that turnaround. Brett Beatty, top 25 prospect in baseball. Pete Crow Armstrong was off to a great start before the injury last year. Still. And that guy, you know what? And Pete Crow Armstrong that you Javi Baez. So right. Kumar Rocker, they took a gamble, didn't pay off. But because of that, they now have two two first rounders this next year. Right. I love to make the joke. I can't wait for the now 30, 40, 50 year old white men to freak out when Andrew Jones's kid is tagged next to the Mets in the draft. <laughs> you know, he's, he's going to be a high – looks like he's going to be a high first-round pick. The Mets are two of those. Those connections are going to be as terrible as when Mets fans thought Kumar Rocker was John Rocker's kid. <laughs> but you talk, you, you talk a little bit about one guy, Brett Beatty. I think out of the guys that are in the Arizona Fall League, he's been rising – The he's surprised me more out of anyone. Like, obviously – you love the, the bat coming out of uh, coming out of the draft, but I did not expect his bat to be this good. He was a guy for me where I would have entertained trading him for the right guy. I don't think I would trade him for anything at this point. Beatty's bat has looked absolutely phenomenal. He was great all year. He got promoted, and now in the AFL is just being even better. The kid looks outstanding. Yeah. So if he if he can just keep playing a good enough third base, no, I had heard next year in twenty twenty three maybe. You know, I had heard towards the back end of last year that some people start to see his hands around. You know, probably a 45, 40 grade, which is respectable. Right, you can live with that. You know, and that's especially and that's a big jump considering he came out of the draft with his big question mark being the defense skill. Yeah. But well, those, the bat's going to be there, but where will the defense be? I think you see two perfect cases of it in the Mets with Mark Vientos and with Brett Beatty. Mm-hmm. Mark, the question is his defense, and he has not figured it out. And for that reason, he's just not on – you don't see him on any top 100 list. I think he cracked one, and it was in the 90s range. I think actually he might have been number 86. Mm. Something like that. But you just don't see him on those types of lists. You can make a case that Vientos is a better is on par offensively with Brett Beatty. I don't know if it's a great case. But you can definitely make the case. It's a I think it's a worthwhile discussion. Right. But the flip side to that is Beatty has started to figure it out defensively, whereas Vientos hasn't. Right. And that's why you see Beatty in the top 30, 40, 20 range stuff like that, you know, and a lot of, you know, they, they play the same position. So you can't make the positional argument. You know, you can make the case that Brett baby might end up having a better overall career than Francisco Alvarez. You can definitely make that case. I mean, cause we don't know, but Alvarez comes with positional value, right? A top catching prospect is like finding gold in California in the 1840s. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. So when you do, you hold on to it. You know, I think the most coveted prospect at this deadline, probably the trading deadline last year, aside from Francisco Alvarez, was probably Joey Bart out in San Francisco. And you know what? You can make the argument they, for sure. They now have Joey Bart set up to be their starting catcher mm-hmm. for as long as they want him to be. Yeah. Imagine if they had traded Joey Bart at the deadline, say to the Cubs in the Bryant deal. Well, the original report that I saw was that Bart was in the deal. Yeah. I remember I was driving to City Field. I was listening to the radio, and someone said that Bart was involved in the deal. 
And then as I pulled up um, and they're scanning my ticket, I, I checked and Bart wasn't in the deal. So I don't know what happened there, but yeah, I think you could definitely make the case that outside of Alvarez, the most coveted prospect that teams look for in return would have been Joey Bart. And that worked out great for San Francisco because now Buster Posey retires. You got Bart ready and waiting. Yeah, I mean, it worked out amazingly for them. So I think you have that positional value on these prospects. And, you know, that positional value, I think, as we talk about trying to dance around the qualifying offer, I think being able to move prospects and having prospects you're willing to move will be important. I think you maybe sell high on a Mark Vientos. You know, you can make a case his value will never be greater than it is right now. I agree. Because he's coming into his final year. Because, you know, in, for all intents and purposes, he will probably start next year in Syracuse. Mm-hmm. I think there's a good chance he starts as a starting third baseman at, their, at Syracuse next year with Beatty in, down in, in Binghamton. So you have that. You have maybe one year on his clock before you really re- realize he's, all right, he's an MLB caliber bat. Let's get him up. Move him now. Get, give him a year to figure out a new organization's hitting philosophy. His value will probably never be higher than it is this winter. So move him at his peak. Look at Carlos Cortez. That's a great bat. Yeah. I think that's a starting MLB caliber bat. Just the question is the defense. It's not really there. You can't really make it stick at any position. So is he more of a more of a, a super platoon type guy, a super utility guy with a worthwhile bat that you try and hide defensively? Or is he a starting caliber second baseman who just struggled? Or is he kind of a Daniel Murphy type in the sense that the bat is there, but he's always going to struggle defensively? And I'm not trying to make a comp that, you know, Carlos Cortez is next Daniel Murphy. Right. But in the sense that... Which I don't hate, by the way. No, that'd be phenomenal. But, you know, it's in the sense that you have a bat that's there, but the defense will always be an issue. Mm-hmm. So I think if Billy Epler decides that it's time to sell high on certain prospects, I think those are two really great names that they could try and move, especially when you look at... If the intent is to keep the five picks in the top 100 and to kind of try and rebuild the farm system in, a, in your own direction... You know, because the Van Wagenen era had its own, he had his own philosophy on it. You know, and the philosophy was draft high, fill out the rest. You know, and that does net you a Brett Beatty, a Matt Mm. Allen, a Pete Crow Armstrong, who are high slot guys, high bonus pool guys. But I think whereas you saw last year, you know, the Mets were really more focused on rounding out the draft. Yeah. You know, they feel like they, they they made 20 good selections and they signed 19 good players. Mm-hmm. Whereas in years prior, it kind of felt like, you know, you're taking guys that you're planning to sign for $10,000 in the fifth round. You know, so you have differences there. But I think as we try and – I think we'll get back to a more old-fashioned scouting way of drafting where you want to make 20 good selections mm-hmm. instead of hoping you make one great one and base your whole draft around that. Right. You know, Mets whole draft the year they took Beatty and Allen Allen was centered around Beatty and Allen. You know, if you don't sign one of those guys, you know, Matt Allen's probably one of the bigger draft gambles in a while. Right. You no, know, cuz if you if you build your draft around giving most of your slot money to most of your pool money to him and Beatty and you only get one of them and he bolts for Florida. Not going to look great. It's not going to look great. And it's going to set your team back. So, you know, I think we'll see the Mets, you know, covet those top two picks. They are important, especially after the Rocker debacle last year. Mm -hmm. You're going to have the desire to be able to make, to hit a home run on that pick and go from there. Yeah. You know, be able to kind of hit a home run on those two picks. It makes Rocker look a lot less problematic yeah we'll have to see what happens i mean i feel like one thing that we we constantly say is that this is going to be a very interesting offseason and they cannot miss this offseason they have to hit on the right spots whether it be free agency trades hopefully the epler move doesn't turn out to be a disaster i mean already it's not going to be worse than Brody, so I'll, I'll I'll take that, I guess. But they have to make the right moves, have to 
allocate the money in proper places, use the scouting department, use a, improve the player development system. Just got to really round out this roster because I still think the NL East is incredibly attainable for the Mets in 2022. Um, I feel like we've gone on a lot longer than we expected to. So any, any final thoughts before we, before we end this emergency episode? Um, you know, I don't think so. I'm excited to see what new times bring. No, I don't think there's any real reason to go into it with pessimism. I just, hopefully this can lead to Cashman or Stearns in 2022. And we don't care about too much about the tampering fines. Steve Cohen's handled fines great in the past. Yeah. So, yeah. He didn't care in the SEC finding like $1.8 billion. Yeah. He, he got fined all that money and he's still worth $18 billion or whatever it is at this point. I mean, I it's ridiculous. With you right now. Yeah. Go for it. Let's see if we can find out. Yes. Any guesses? Uh, 15.8. As of November 16th, 2021, Steve Cohen's net worth is 15.9. Oh. Damn, that's close. That's a good, that's a good, that's like when you're guessing what temperatures outside and you're like, yeah, I'm feeling 74. No, nah, 73. That's yeah, actually 74. Yeah. <laughs> How about that? That's a backbreaker. Yeah. But I mean, listen, you're, again, when you're worth, we'll, we'll round up and call it 16 billion. You're not going to worry about whatever the tampering fine is. You'll, you got that $500,000 in your ashtray. Uh, so I don't know. I'm going to end off with this. I've completely sold myself on Justin Verlander coming here. Build a dominant rotation, get Chris Bryant here, re-sign Javi Baez, make it work, and we'll see what happens in 2022. Hopefully, Billy Epler isn't a disaster. That's all I got. Follow us on Twitter, The Mason City, and Tony Slater, Jack W. Ramsey. We'll see you next time.